0: Good morning. Thank you so much for uh, being here in worship with us today. Uh, As you can see, we are continuing a series that we started last week called He's Still Rolling Stones. And of course, last week was Easter, and that was the big celebration of God's greatest stone rolling moment when He rolled the stone away from the tomb, when the tomb was empty, when Jesus was alive. And last week I said if God was able to do that, to roll away the stone of spiritual death, to roll away the stone of physical death, then God is more than able to roll away other stones in your life. Those things that you think are impossible, those things you think are barriers to you, living the kind of life that God would have for you, God is more than able to do the impossible. And today we're talking about rolling away the stone of Of despair. Uh, Another word that we might use is depression. Um, When we talk about depression, there are a couple of uh, definitions of that word. The first definition is feelings of uh, severe despondency and dejection. Uh, This is something that all of us have experienced in life. Um, you, You have had times of feeling down, you've had days where you have just felt blue for whatever reason. I tend to suffer from seasonal depression. It's one of the reasons I could never live in a city like Chicago or Buffalo. Uh, you give me about six straight weeks of rain and cold, and this dark cloud begins to form over my head. And sometimes that happens here. I probably just need to buy a sunlamp or, you know, a, a ticket to some warm location. But all of us have had those experiences where we just, just sort of feel down. The second definition is a little fuller. It is a mental condition characterized by feelings of severe despondency and dejection, typically also with feelings of inadequacy and guilt, often accompanied by lack of energy and disturbance of appetite and sleep. This is what we call clinical depression. This is serious and needs to be dealt with by a professional. Um, It is estimated that roughly 15% of Americans will experience clinical depression at some point uh, in their life. And so the question this morning that we're asking is, why do we experience these things? You know, whether it's just sort of feeling down or it is full-blown clinical depression or anything on that scale in between, why do we have those times where we just feel depressed well let me give you something this morning and let me give you a disclaimer first I am NOT a clinical psychologist I am NOT a licensed counselor Um, this is not the result of some major study that I have done or I've read about someone else doing this is my observation of life but I think it's right and I think it's pretty obvious to you in here and you'll agree with me the reason we experience depression is because of three things. The first is because of our wiring. So from a Christian worldview, uh, we are broken people born into a broken world. If you were talking about biology, you would say this is, this is a genetic wiring. If you were talking about psychologically, you'd say this is a predetermined disposition. Theologically speaking, we say that we are all born sinners. We all have certain aspects of ourselves where we struggle with sin, um, although we struggle with different sins. So for some people, you struggle with a certain temptation that maybe I don't struggle with. You know, we all struggle with sin. They're just different sins. Um, For example... Several years ago, I had a major surgery, and in the aftermath of that surgery, I was on the painkiller Percocet for about a week, just to be able to manage the pain and be able to sleep and try to recover. um, I discovered during that week that I do not do well with what are classified as Schedule 2 narcotics, Um, meaning they make me weird really strange. Um, I was around very few people during that time. You know, I, I did not want to see anyone. I, I, I felt awful. Taking those drugs made me feel bad, which meant I transitioned off of them as quickly as I could, and I had about a half a bottle left over. Now, that half bottle of Percocet sat in my drawer for almost two years. Not one time did I think, ooh, I'd like to try one of those just to see how it makes me feel post-surgery. You know, not suffering from any kind of pain. I just want to take it for the thrill of it. Not once, because I knew that it it made me feel weird. I did not like the way it made me feel. There are friends, though, that that I have who have had surgery, and afterwards, they've struggled to get off those painkillers. They have formed an addiction. What was not a temptation for me was a temptation for them. Why? Because we are wired differently. It's not that I have more self-control than they have just in this area. They are wired differently. They were born with an addictive personality. Meaning, simply put, that we struggle with sin. We just struggle with different sins. Some people are more prone to worry than others. Some are more prone to anxiety than others. Some are prone to addiction. Some are prone to anger. And some people are wired so that they struggle with depression. It's it's not anything other than the fact that that's the way that they biologically are. And so for them, it's a struggle. Now, listen to me. I am not saying that depression is a sin any more than someone who struggles with, say, self-esteem because they are wired that way is a sin. What I'm saying is we all struggle with different issues, and for some people, this is a weakness. So, number one, it's wiring. Number two, it is circumstances. So, life doesn't go the way that you planned it to go. Things aren't working out the way that you wanted them to work out. Financially, there's a struggle or the big breakup happens, or there is you know, the end of the marriage, and that, that is the circumstance that you are facing, or there is a health, health struggle, or the loss of a loved one. Whatever it is, you're facing this circumstance, and life isn't going well, and that contributes to depression. Now, again, this is not some study. I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I think this is pretty obvious. Wiring We have no control over that. You're made the way that you're made, and there's nothing that you can do to change that. Circumstances, you sometimes have control over it, and sometimes you do not. There are sometimes that you make decisions that lead to the bad circumstances that then cause the depression. And sometimes those things just happen to you that cause the circumstances that lead to the depression. So let's say that you just one day foolishly get mad at your job and you quit and you walk out and that's it. And you don't look for another job. You don't want to work for anybody else and you're just doing nothing. You don't look, you don't care. And financially, you begin to suffer as a result of that and that leads you to a place of depression. Well, that's a circumstance, but your decisions led to that circumstance. Let's say that you have a job and you're laid off because of an economic downturn. And you look and look and look, but you just can't find another job, and so financially you suffer, and then you become depressed because of your financial situation. Same circumstances, but you did not control those circumstances. They happen to you, not because of decisions that you made. So, wiring, 0% control over. Circumstances, 50% control over however there's a third category and it is our focus which we have control over our focus we have control over those things that we will think about where we place our hopes where we put our our mental energy we have control over that wiring we do not circumstances we sometimes do but 100% of the time we have control over what we choose to focus on, which, which will contribute to our depression or will help us in that struggle. Last week, I, I read an article about celebrities who admitted to struggling with depression, and it, it, it actually gave stories of several individuals, and they talked about how they've struggled with depression, especially during this past year. Uh, Michelle Obama was featured, Ben Affleck, Justin Bieber, and they all talked about their struggle with depression. And admittedly, I got to the end of that article and I thought, give me a break. You know, if I had the kind of money that you have, if I had the big house and the private butler and the private jet and the chance to do whatever I wanted to do and go wherever I wanted to go, I don't think I would ever Depressed, and if I was, I sure would admit it to this magazine and let someone write an article about it. The moment I thought about that, this second thought came to my mind. Think about how many people would say the same thing to you, to me. Someone in a third world country would say, You mean you never have to struggle for your next meal, and yet you're depressed? Give me a break. You get to sleep in an air conditioned house. Give me a break. You get to sleep in a bed. Give me a break. You get in a car and you go somewhere. Give me a break. How could you ever be depressed? Which means that so much of of our despair and depression, wherever it is on the scale, is because of our focus in life. Where we choose to place our mental energy contributes to our depression. So today, we're going to talk about How do we put ourselves in a position where God is able to roll away the stone from our lives? Now, when you read the Bible, there are a lot of examples of individuals who struggle with depression. Um, Jeremiah is one of the best, most notable. He was called the weeping prophet for a reason. Uh, God gave Jeremiah a message to give to the people of Israel And the people of Israel rejected the message, and they rejected Jeremiah as well. And he suffered from deep, dark depression as a result. Uh, Think about Job, if you've ever read the book of Job. Job in one day lost his family and his fortune, and he went through some dark days. Some severe depression because of all that had happened to him. Uh, Saul, King Saul, because of his focus... Because he had taken his eyes off of God, because pride consumed his life, because jealousy consumed his life, he suffered from depression. Um, Solomon, King Solomon, who had incredible wealth, access to any and every kind of pleasure the world had to offer, in the book of Ecclesiastes records his depression, where he got to the point that he just said, I hated life. There is example after example after example we could point to in Scripture. The one I want us to look at this morning is found in 1 Kings 19. If you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. 1 Kings is towards the beginning of your Bible, uh, right after First and 2 Samuel. And just to set this up, this event that we will read about today took place um, during a very difficult time in Israel's history. Now, at this point, Israel was divided into two nations— Um, There was Israel in the north, uh, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. It was a very chaotic time in their history. Uh, They had a few bright moments and a few good kings, but for the most part, both nations had wandered from God. Both nations had kings that did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in the northern kingdom, at this particular point, the king was a guy named Ahab. Um, Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. Um, Jezebel was not an Israelite. That was not her home. She was from a country called Damascus, located to the north, what is modern-day Lebanon. And she was the daughter of the king uh, who was king over the two city-states of Tyre and Sidon, these very powerful city-states. That king made an alliance with King Ahab of Israel that was basically a peace treaty. And to seal that treaty, he gave his daughter Jezebel to Ahab in marriage to take as his wife. Now, I didn't see anyone sort of cringe at that. Our modern ears, we hear that and we think, well, that, that's just awful, you know, you can't just give some girl to some guy. She's not a piece of property. You know, we hear that and we think, man, that, that is just awful. A couple things to keep in mind. In that day, that was common. It was very, very common for any daughter in a ruling family to be used as a pawn of diplomacy. That's just, that's just how it worked. The second thing to keep in mind is this. Don't feel too sorry for Jezebel. She was an evil, um, in her own way, very powerful and extremely manipulative person. And yes, she was given away in marriage, but before she left her home country, she turned to her dad and she said, if you're going to give me away, then here's the deal. I want to worship our God when I'm in Israel, not the God they worship. And, And her dad agreed. They worshiped the god Melchort, which was basically their version of the god Baal, a fertility god that was worshiped by most of the nations around Israel. And she said, here's, here's the arrangement I want. If I'm going to Israel, and I'm going, I have to live there, I want to take with me 450 priests who serve the god Baal to go with me into Israel. And so her Her father agreed, and he sent 450 of these priests of the God Baal uh, into Israel. She got to Israel, and she looked at her new husband, King Ahab, and she said, if I've got to live here, here's the deal. You're going to build me here in Israel a temple to the God Baal. King Ahab said, okay, fine. So he constructed a temple to the God Baal. Her goal was not just to worship Baal like she had done in her country. Her goal was to get all of Israel to worship Baal as well. Well, she was very good at what she did. And the nation of Israel turned away from God and began to worship this fertility god, Baal. After a period of time, God raised up a prophet named Elijah and said to Elijah, I want you to go to King Ahab and say, enough is enough. You guys need to be done with Baal. And to turn the hearts of the people back to God. So Elijah goes and says that to Ahab. And Ahab says no. And so Elijah says, okay, if you're not going to do that, God's going to cause the rain to stop. It will not rain in Israel for three years because you've done this. And Ahab says, I don't care. Go ahead. Won't rain. That's fine. We'll continue to worship Baal. Now, At this point, you would have thought that the nation of Israel would have said, we're done with Baal, we're going to turn to God for a couple of reasons. One, Elijah says God's going to stop the rain. The rain stops. That sort of proves that God is God because, you know, Elijah has said God's going to do this and it happens. But the more important reason is that Baal was considered a fertility god. The reason the Israelites worship Baal is because they believe by worshiping this God that God would give them successful crops. And that was their economy. And so they worshiped Baal basically because they wanted to have a lot of stuff. Baal was a fertility God. Well, how do you get good crops? By rain. Yeah, if it rains, then you get the good crops. And... God calls the rain to stop, so it would have seemed to have made sense that the people in Israel would have said, Well, look, it's not raining. We're worshiping Baal. Without rain, we can't have good crops. Obviously, Baal's not real. But somehow Jezebel and the prophets of Baal convinced all of the people and made all of these excuses and said, Well, you know, here's why it's not happening. We need to continue to worship Baal. And so the people continued to follow this God, Baal. So eventually, God tells Elijah, this is it, this is enough. You need to have a contest between you and the prophets of Baal to prove to the people of Israel once and for all that I'm really God. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, we need to meet on Mount Carmel. Me against your 450 prophets of Baal, and then we'll gather all of Israel on Mount Carmel We'll have this contest and we'll prove once and for all who is really God. So the contest was they basically set up these altars on Mount Carmel. And then the 450 prophets of Baal called out to Baal for hours and hours and hours trying to get Baal to answer them. For hours and hours they cried out and Baal never answered because he's not real. Right, yeah, that's why he didn't answer. For hours and hours and hours nothing happens. Then Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. He offers a prayer to God. God answers by sending fire down from heaven. It consumes the altar that Elijah had created. Everyone sees, well, God is God. All the nation of Israel gathered there on the mountain, sees this happen. They repent. They turn back to God. They seize the 450 prophets of Baal, and they slaughter all of them. The moment they finish killing all the prophets of Baal, this dark cloud forms on the horizon, And for the first time in three years, rain begins to fall in Israel. About two years ago, Katie and I had the chance to go to Israel and we went to Mount Carmel. I have read this story so many times in my life. But there that day, I was able to picture those events and what happened. Here's a picture I took while we were there. You can see the plane that's where the battle royale took place. That's where Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, that's where they faced one another. And then you can see how the mountain comes up on three sides. That's where Israel sat and they watched. It's like a stadium with one side missing. And so it's easy to picture how all of this happened that day. Just to prove you, to you I didn't pick this off of Facebook. I actually took a selfie while we were there. See, that's us. There on Mount Carmel. Okay, that's where our story picks up. This is 1 Kings 19, if you've got a Bible. And we'll start with verse 1. Here's what we read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went to a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree... And fell asleep. Okay, stop there for just a moment. Jezebel, evil, awful, powerful Jezebel, gets word that they've had this contest and that Elijah has had 450 of her prophets that she brought from her home into Israel all murdered. And she is furious. So she gets word to Elijah I'm going to kill you, I'm going to hunt you down and I will kill you. And Elijah understood that she had enough power that she could make this happen. So Elijah runs to a place called Beersheba. Beersheba was about 90 miles to the south of Mount Carmel and was located in the southern kingdom uh, called Judah, which meant not only did he run, he didn't just go to the next mountain. He put as much distance as he could between him Uh, and Jezebel by getting as far away as he could, even going into another country. There he travels. It would have taken him about a week to go 90 miles. He gets to Beersheba and he tells his servant, you stay here. And then he travels for another day into the desert, finds this broom tree, gets under the broom tree, and then he says these words under the broom tree, I have had enough, Lord, take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Now, was he depressed, clinically depressed, suicidal? Uh, Does he literally mean take my life, God? Or is this just hyperbole? We don't know. But I think it's safe to say, based on his actions and the words he says here, here was Elijah experiencing depression. He was in a bad, dark, deep, dark place in his life. Then skip down to verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? The word of the Lord came, what are you doing here, Elijah? Not, what are you doing here in Judah? What are you doing here in the desert? What are you doing here under a broom tree? What are you doing so far away from Mount Carmel? But Elijah, what are you doing here mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? Why are you in this place of feeling suicidal and depressed? Here's what Elijah said. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah says, I'm it. They've put everyone to death. Everyone who follows you, God, they have killed. I am it, and now they're trying to kill me too. God, just go ahead and take my life. There are several things about Elijah here that we need to note that led to his depression. Number one, Elijah was exhausted. He was physically exhausted, he was mentally exhausted, he was spiritually exhausted. He traveled for 90 miles to get to this place. He would have been walking for a solid week. He was physically exhausted uh, at this point. He was spiritually exhausted from that experience on top of Mount Carmel. This incredible showdown where he got to see God move, where, where the people of Israel got to see him face down, these prophets of Baal... It was this incredibly emotional, spiritual experience, and yet he would have been worn out from it. Uh, He was, at this point, simply wiped out. And in his exhausted state, says, God, I'm just done. Just go ahead and take my life. The second thing is that he was isolated. So he left Israel. He left the community he knew. He took only a servant with him, travels for a week, and then he says to the servant, you stay here. And for another day, he goes out into the desert all alone. Just him and his thoughts, thinking about this message from Jezebel, thinking about the worst-case scenarios, creating all of these circumstances in his head about his situation Because he didn't have anyone with him to say, hey, give me your thoughts. To to help me process this. He was all alone in the desert. The third thing about this is that he was mistaken. God says, Elijah, why are you here in this place? Why are you so down? Why are you depressed? And Elijah says, God, I'll tell you why. They have killed everyone who worships you and I'm the only one left. Well, Elijah, we know from the story that's not true. We know that when you were on Mount Carmel and you had this contest and God answered and all the people gathered on the hillside saw that, they repented. And so, yeah, if they were following Baal, just a week ago they all repented and they killed the prophets of Baal. I mean, they are following God now. So, one, we know that's not true just because of what we read in 1 Kings 18. But then God later says to Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 individuals who have never bent their knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah, you may think you're the only one, but there are thousands of others who, just like you, have not worshipped Baal. You are not alone. You may think you're alone, but you're not alone at all. Okay, so what can we learn from this passage? How do we fight against oppression. When those dark days come, when there are days that we think, gosh, I just don't know what I'm going to do next. What are some things we can do to put ourselves in the position where God can remove this stone from our lives? Here's the first thing. Find community. Elijah's number one problem was he had isolated himself. He had gotten to a place where no one could speak into his life and help him process what he was going through. Let me, for just a minute, turn your attention to Genesis chapter 3. So if you know, if you've read your Bible, if you know Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you know that both of those are the creation accounts. Genesis 1 gives a high-level overview of all six days of creation. So God creates the light, separates it from the darkness, and creates the waters, and creates the land, and... Creates the animals, creates all of these things, and at various junctures, God would stop, and He would look at all that He had created, and He would say, "It is good. This is good. The trees I've created, they are good. The animals I've created, they are good." And He creates man, and He and He looks at His creation of man, and He calls it good. Then Genesis 2 gives a more full account of His creation of man goes through the story, and at that point in Genesis 2, God creates man, and then he looks and he says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So all along the way, God has said, it is good, it is good, it is good, and he gets to this point and he says, it's not good. Now, this is before sin has entered the world. This is before Genesis 3 where everything becomes broken. At this point, the world is perfection except for this one thing. God looks at His creation and says, it is not good for man to be alone. He needs to have someone with Him. When we isolate ourselves, we do ourselves harm. Throughout Scripture we read where we are encouraged to be in community. God tells us to be in community with other believers, which is one of the reasons this past year has been so incredibly hard. We have locked down, we have quarantined, we have socially distanced, and study after study after study has shown that it has harmed our nation because we have failed to be in community. In fact, I read recently a report about the increase in anxiety and depression among Americans, and look what it said. It said more than 42% of people surveyed by the U.S. Census Bureau in December reported symptoms of anxiety or depression in December, an increase from 11% the previous year. What they were studying here was December of 2020. In December of 2020, 42% of Americans said that they were experiencing anxiety or depression. They compared this with December of 2019, before all this began. At that point, 11% of Americans were experiencing anxiety or depression. In one year, it grew by 31%. And the article went on to explain there were two factors that caused this. One was fear, fear over what would happen next with the economy, with the COVID, with everything going on. One was fear, and the second was isolation. That as people isolated themselves, they actually became more depressed. As they isolated themselves and they abandoned their normal social interactions, that they became depressed. Basically, this study shows what the Bible has been teaching for thousands and thousands of years, that we need one another, that we need to be in community. And let me just say that being on your phone on Instagram doesn't count. (laughs) Having friends on Facebook does not count. Scrolling through post after post is not social interaction. In fact, those studies have shown that it actually leads to more depression. Zoom meetings, even though they are necessary, they don't count. We need one another. We need to make sure that we are in community. Which is why, parents, by the way, we have pushed and pushed and pushed for all of our ministry areas to form groups where your children are in community. Not just where they're getting Bible teaching through some teacher who teaches in a classroom setting. We have structured our next-gen ministries For them to be in community. Preschool, children, students. And and so parents, let me just say, don't don't let Sunday morning just be an option. If you're a parent of teenagers, don't let their meetings during the week just be an option. This is vital for the psychological well-being of your teenager and of your child. For them to be in a community with like-minded believers. Parents is the same way for us. That's why we push and push and push home teams so much. We believe that it is vital, vitally important, not just for our spiritual growth, but for our for our emotional lives, our mental lives to be in community with like-minded believers who can help us work through all of these issues that we face. So, number one, find community. Number two, take a break just take a break. Elijah was exhausted and he needed to take a break. Elijah was exhausted and he was evaluating his circumstances based just on what he had experienced and through the filter of I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just take a nap. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to get up from your desk and walk outside around your building one time. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just change what you're doing right now. In fact, I have a friend who puts it this way. I love, I love this phrase. A change in place plus a change in pace equals a change of perspective. Go somewhere different, slow down, and likely what you're looking at, the way you view your life, It will change as well. Don't just think the way, the filter that you're looking through right now is always reality. And with a little bit of time, your perspective could change. All right, finally, and here's the last thing I really want to hammer home for, is trust in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. At the very core of Elijah's problem was the fact that the same God that he trusted in so strongly on Mount Carmel, When he faced down the 450 prophets of Baal, at this point, 90 miles to the south in Beersheba, his faith had weakened. And he just didn't trust that same God in the same way. Our trust in God, our faith in the gospel and what the gospel teaches us will do so much to remove that stone of depression and cause our perspective to change. Now, please understand, I'm not saying this, that if you are experiencing any kind of depression, that that means that your faith is weak, and you just need to have stronger faith, and with stronger faith, that God will carry you through, and God will... I am not saying that at all. Here's what I'm saying. Even with just a little bit of faith, that the gospel is strong enough, and whatever it is that you have, even though it's weak, even though it's just this tiny little mustard seed of faith, continue to go back to the well of the gospel over and over and over and what it teaches us to help you through whatever it is that you're facing. Pastor and author Tim Keller puts it this way. I think this is such a good summary. He says, Strong faith in a weak object fails, but even weak faith in a strong object succeeds. The the strong object of the gospel, whatever it is that you've got, just that little bit of faith, continue to go back to the gospel. The gospel that tells you that you are approved. The gospel that tells you that you are deeply loved through Christ. The gospel that tells you that whatever it is that you're facing is not your forever reality because the God who loves you has a glorious future planned for you. Continue with whatever faith you have to go back to that Time and time again. Let me close with this uh, quote by Luke Italiano. He writes a blog called Bread for Beggars. Here's what he said. You may be faithful, you may work hard, and yet you still may experience depression. The world is broken and your body may be broken in a way that causes you to have depression. Take heart. Jeremiah wasn't saved because of his faithfulness. He wasn't saved by clinging to an undying optimism or a practical even-headedness. He was saved because of God's faithfulness to him and to all the promises he made. You aren't loved because you control your depression. You aren't accepted because you work hard at serving others. You are saved because God is faithful to you. He is faithful to all the promises he has made to you, even on your darkest day. God is faithful to you. You are loved. You are forgiven. You belong to him.